0: go ahead and open up to the book of 1 John, and we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3 this morning. If you're new to the Bible, uh, don't be afraid to use your table of contents to look for 1 John, not the first John, but it's 1 John. Uh, or a quick little tip is if you turn to the book of Revelation and then, which is the very last book of the Bible, start flipping some pages from left to right, uh, you'll hit John after just uh, a few flips. First John chapter three. Now uh, before we dive in, uh, for, I have someone that I, I want to introduce you to. Um, for the Sundays in Black History Month, I've introduced you to Christian men and women whom God's used in mighty ways, but whose names we're not familiar with, primarily because they're black. And one thing I've enjoyed most over these past few weeks is the number of you who have sent me emails and articles and given me names of prominent black Christians whose stories you've found inspiring. And I wish I could share them all. Um, but I had a plan coming into these four weeks. And since I'm a control freak, I want to stick to it. And uh, I want to <laughs> introduce you this morning to Ray and Gloria Hammond. Uh, if I were to ask you to name me some significant Boston pastors, Uh, You might mention Gordon Hugenberger, recently retired from Park Street. Uh, You might mention Brian Wilkerson at Grace Chapel in Lexington. Uh, Another pastor a bit newer on the scene is Pastor Sean Sears at Grace Church in Avon. And these men are faithful servants doing great things for the kingdom of God, but the Hammonds are another name that you need to know. Ray and Gloria Hammond both initially trained as physicians Uh, Ray completed his bachelor's degree at Harvard College, received his master's degree from Harvard Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, and received his M.D. from Harvard Medical School. Gloria received her bachelor's degree from Boston University, her master's from Harvard Divinity, and her M.D. from Tufts. Uh, In the 80s, black communities in Boston experienced widespread drugs, gun violence, and gang violence. And these were the communities in which the Hammonds lived and practiced medicine. And it was out of their grief uh, at what they were seeing that they experienced a call from God to make a real viable change in the lives around them. And so they started a church. Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church began in 1988 as a Bible study in the Hammond's dining room with five other people. Today, Bethel AME has over 600 members and an outsized impact impact in the communities of Boston. Uh, since its founding, the Hammonds have led their church to improve lives and communities in greater Boston by starting faith-based works that especially target at-risk youth and families. Uh, one example of this, Ray is the co-founder of the Boston Ten Point Coalition, a faith-based group of clergy members who work with civic and community leaders to decrease violence among young people and to revitalize families and communities struck by violence, in particular gun violence and gang violence. Uh, their work is credited with a movement known as the Boston Miracle. It was a time in 1998 in which there was a significant drop in citywide violence related to gang activity. Ray is also the executive director of his churches, of a program in his church called Generation Excel, which provides academic, social, and emotional support to high-risk youth And Generation Excel is just one of several programs that exist under the umbrella of what is known as the Bethel Institute for Social Justice, whose mission is to provide educational and social services to high-risk youth and families in greater Boston. Gloria worked as a pediatrician at the South End Community Health Center from 81 to 2008. And while caring for adolescent female patients, she was inspired to found an organization called Do the Right Thing, which aided hundreds of high-risk girls throughout Boston Public Schools, juvenile detention centers, as well as those connected with Bethel AME Church. She traveled to war-torn South Sudan from 2001 to 2003, to assist in freeing more than 10,000 people from slavery there. Uh, Following that experience, she created, along with five other women, a humanitarian and human rights organization called My Sister's Keeper to champion social justice for women and girls in conflict zones around the world. She also helped establish a group called Shatter the Silence, a faith-based network of churches that addresses sexual victimization of women and men in predominantly African-American communities and helps them with their healing. Now, if I were to read you the long list of their accomplishments and their leadership positions in the programs begun by the Hammonds, it would sound like I was making things up. It is comically long. But most impressive is that their efforts are not isolated. They have organized black pastors and churches to work together along with government leaders to decrease violence and improve the lives of countless people in greater Boston. For over 35 years, the Hammonds have been moved by God and the gospel to bring about his kingdom in Boston as it is in heaven. And Ray and Gloria Hammond are some names that you should remember. 1 John chapter 3 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. I wonder, uh, do you or your family, do you have rules that are unique to your family? Uh, We have Several. One example of a rule that's unique to our family is this on Sunday evening dinner in our house is O Y O. That means on your own. If you're going to eat on Sunday night, you got to fend for yourself. Go eat yard clippings, go drink snow water, uh, eat a tortilla with mustard on it. We don't care. You are on your own, child of mine. Uh, on Sunday nights, and so far no one has missed a meal. It's a miracle how that works. Uh, but that's just a weird little rule in our house, just a, a way to encourage rest, uh, and because sometimes Sunday evenings can have a lot going on, dinner on your own. That's one little family rule. Did you know that the church also has some unique family rules? And we're gonna talk about a, a couple of those unique rules. From 1 John 3 today and the family rules we're going to look at are these first of all don't hate each other in the family second of all you got to love each other in this family those are our family rules this is how we gather and how we live our lives amongst each other Uh, and to not hate but to love you might think easy enough Got it. Shortest sermon ever. What a great Sunday. Well, that just hurts my feelings when you say those things (laughs) because we don't get this as right as we think we do. It sounds simple, but it's quite complicated. The reality is we all too often make room for the presence of hate in our lives, and all too often we don't practice love as Jesus commanded us. This is the threat facing the church that John wrote to. If you've been with us these past few weeks, you'll remember the setting, what's happening in this church. It's a church that's been really decimated by conflict. There was a group who John called anti-Christ. What he meant by that is they taught a view of God that removed Jesus from the equation. Their teachings, their morality, their ethics were anti-Jesus. And this group... Left the church. It was a major split and it caused real damage in the hearts and lives of the people who remained in the church. And John's written this letter to encourage this hurting church and to keep them focused on Jesus Christ. And so throughout this letter, he, he reassures them that their salvation by faith in Christ is real and true and secure, that there is forgiveness and grace for their sin. Uh, and, and then he's also warning them about stepping into sin. The passage we studied last week hit hard on this point about the need for even hurting Christians to pay attention to their souls. And this morning, the passage we're studying shifts to focus on the vital importance of love in the fellowship of believers, a love that we learn through our experience with Jesus Christ. A question you might ask yourself this morning is this, who do you give yourself permission to hate? Do you know what love looks like? If we get hate and love wrong, then we may very well question whether or not we've even experienced God's love. But when we take a Christ-like posture to these matters, we'll see lives transformed around us. So my purpose in preaching this passage today is to persuade you to love each other the way Jesus has loved us. And John gives us two distinct lessons on hate and love. I want you to follow along with me as I read 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 11. John says, For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another, unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and truth." So in this passage, John gives us two profound lessons, one on hate and one on love. And the first lesson we begin with this morning is the negative one. It's this, hatred is incompatible with the Christian faith. You know this. You don't need me to tell you this. But we have to root down into this truth today. Hatred is incompatible with the Christian faith. So John begins by giving us the headline in verse 11. The headline is this. This is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. The message from the beginning. Now, does that language sound familiar at all to you? It's almost the exact same language that John used to open this letter. Back in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, What was from the beginning? What we have heard concerning the word of life, the word of life, that message about Jesus Christ is a message about his love for us shown at the cross and the kind of people he transforms us into, people who love one another. Unfortunately, that message has been interrupted by sin and by hate in particular. And so in verse 12, John gives us a biblical example of hate in action And he references the story of Cain and Abel. That story is found in Genesis chapter 4. Just uh, for the sake of trivia, this is the only Old Testament reference in the entire book of 1 John. But here in Genesis chapter 4, we know this story. Cain murders his brother Abel. And what was Cain's reason? Well, John tells us that Cain belonged to his father, the evil one, and also it's not that... Abel was wicked. Rather, it's that Cain was wicked. That's the reason he lashes out against his brother. John Stott, writer, preacher, uh, commented on this passage, and he said this. He said, "...jealousy was behind Cain's hatred, not the jealousy that covets another's greater gifts, but that which resents another's greater righteousness, the envy which made the Jewish priests demand the death of Jesus." Jealousy, hatred, murder is a natural and terrible sequence. So he gives us this biblical example of what hatred for family to family looks like. And and then verse 13, after his reference to uh, to, to Cain, John makes this statement. He says, don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. And that may seem like a really random comment. Why does he drop in this line? Why doesn't he continue his train of thought with Cain? But the truth is, there is a connection between Cain and the world that we shouldn't miss. You see, Cain was the prototype of the world. It's natural for the world, represented by Cain, to hate the church. The sun shines, the snow melts, and the world hates the message of Christ's love. Now, for John's original audience, verse 13 had an even more immediate application. You might remember, again, earlier in the letter, John referenced the group of people who had left the church. They taught a message that was anti-Jesus, and then they all took off and left. But according to chapter 3, verse 8, that group belonged to their father, the evil one, just like Cain belonged to his father, the evil one. And so when John speaks of the world here, the first application was not just some vague notion of people on the outside. He was speaking very specifically of this group who rejected the apostolic message about Jesus and left. They were not of us. They left from us. So John has set up this Sort of elaborate argument that hate is incompatible with the Christian life. And so he's, he's told us we've got this original plan. That was that we should love one another. Cain's the biblical example of what hatred looks like. It's natural for the world to hate the message of Christ. And then he drives home his point by stating the difference that our faith in Christ makes in our experience with hate. Look at verse 14. He says, We know that we've passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. So one of the many evidences that we no longer belong to the evil one is the demonstrable fact that we love our brothers and sisters. Love is the surest sign that a person has put their faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation. Now, is John saying that people who love are automatically saved? Loving people, just, we just know beyond a shadow of a doubt, they're loving, therefore they have God's favor. That's not what John is saying in this passage. Uh, John is telling us that people whose faith is in Christ for their salvation reveal that faith through the way they treat other people. The way one pastor said it was this, Our love for one another is the flower and fruit that indicates eternal life is at the root. So if that's true, that people who love are showing evidence of their faith in Jesus Christ, then the opposite would also be true according to John. The person who's riddled with hate remains outside the atonement of Jesus. In John's language, love, light, and life belong together, but also belonging together are hatred and darkness and death. Love and hate are moral opposites. They cannot reside at the same time in the same heart. So with verse 15, John makes his final comment on hate. He says, everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So lack of love is evidence of spiritual death. I think it's always important that we're very careful and precise with God's word. Is John saying here that uh, people who commit murder cannot be forgiven by God? No, that's not his point, and that's not what he's saying. Remember that even Jesus prayed for his own murderers as he hung on the cross. But Rather, John is making a general statement that those who actively hate are committing a horrific spiritual crime that is incompatible with Christian faith. So I want you to take a moment, and I want you to think about how common and accepted it is for us to hate. Hate is not the product of God's original design. The message from the beginning is not that we would hate each other. It's that we would love each other. The message from the beginning was not even that we would hate our enemies. It's that we would love each other. Hatred is a result of the fall. It's the offspring of our sin. And although hatred is not of God, so many Christians excuse their practice of hatred with no consideration of hate's origin or hate's destructive potential. And maybe you have a good reason to hate a person. Let me give you a few categories of hateable people. Uh, the coworker who's generally nasty and rude and self-centered. The person who subscribes to different ideologies and views than you. The person who hates the thing that you love. Or maybe it's the person who has hurt you. As for these and more, the world would tell you this. It's okay. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But Jesus tells you in Matthew 5, 44, love your enemy. Our our love is to go to our brothers and sisters. It extends beyond the church as well. But hate has no place in the Christian life. It is incompatible with Christian faith. Jesus has shown us a better way. And what's the better way? That's the second lesson that John gives us this morning. If hate is incompatible, well, love is essential. Love is essential to the Christian faith. Verse 16 is filled with truths so grand that we can hardly comprehend what we're reading. You ever get that sense when you're reading through the Bible, you hit this line, and you think, how is this even in English? I, I don't understand the gravity, the weight, the glory, the majesty of what I'm looking at on the page verse 16 this is how we have come to know love he laid down his life for us so this is how we've come to know love this is our experience of love this is how we've been loved this is how we've seen love demonstrated this is love divined or defined it's this he laid down his life for us who is he he is god the son the eternal word the creator The light of men, the word made flesh, the lamb of God, the son of God, the word of life, our advocate, our atoning sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He laid down his life. The eternal God, the creator, entered his creation and took on flesh. He was born to a virgin and given the name Jesus at his birth. He lived a sinless, perfect life, and then he was executed On a cross. To those present for his execution, it appeared Jesus was the victim of this intersection of religious powers and government powers. However, his death was not an unexpected event that needed a story after the fact to explain it. This was God's plan since before creation. He laid down his life, it wasn't taken from him. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Cain hated and took life. Jesus loved and gave his life. He laid down his life for us. And who are we? We are Cain, we are dead in our sin. We are by nature objects of God's wrath for our sin against him. We are the reason the world is how it is. We are people filled with hate. Hate for each other and hate for God. We are enemies of God. And yet Jesus laid down his life for us. He didn't hate his enemies. He didn't hate us rebels. He loved us. And this is how we know love. He laid down his life for us. Do you know this about Jesus, that he laid down his life for you? If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, this is the message you were born to hear. That he loved you and he laid down his life for you. You didn't ask him to. You haven't discovered Jesus and then worked to bring him your way. Before you were born, he knew what your salvation would require and he did it. He laid down his life for you. There's no one else that has loved you this way or could love you this way to forgive you for your sin and to give you new life. Jesus Christ is the only one. And he invites you in response to his love, he invites you to love him. So you turn from all of the hate. You turn from all of the brokenness and sin and you, you turn to Jesus Christ and there you find a loving savior who receives you and he forgives you. He takes away the sin and the guilt. He gives you new life in him. You are his child forevermore. His love is for your salvation and for your redemption. So if you don't know Christ as your savior, today's the day. Why would you put off that love for another moment? And before you leave this building today, grab me, grab one of the pastors, grab someone that you know and trust who walks with Jesus, and let this be the moment that you say yes to him. Jesus has shown his love for us in that he laid down his life. John goes on, and he says that since Jesus laid down his life for us, we should lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So our knowledge of love goes beyond personal experience to personal obligation, While it's true that Christians are to love all people, John's focus here is on our brothers and sisters in the faith, those that we worship with. And John doesn't leave us guessing as to what it means to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If that's all he said, lay down your lives for your brothers and sisters, I think we'd be okay with that because we're content to live with hypothetical exaggerations. We'll just sort of define that vagary however we want. It's easier to tell someone, I would fight a bear for you, than it is to pay their rent. So he doesn't leave it in the vagary. He gives us a definition of what it means to lay down our lives for one another. And what is it, verse 17? If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and truth. In verse 17, he uses a negative statement to prompt positive behavior. If this is a situation and you don't do it, if you've got stuff and someone needs stuff and you don't give it, how does God's love reside in you? There's the negative, prompting, positive behavior. It's the same technique used by James, the brother of Jesus. In James chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, James wrote, If a brother or sister is without clothes... And lacks daily food. And one of you says to them, Go and peace, stay warm, and be well fed. But you don't give them what the body needs. What good is it? So what does it look like to lay down our lives for each other? It looks like this. We are to meet each other's needs in tangible ways with our own stuff. The people of God are to live with a generosity unmatched by the world. John tells us, not to love in word or speech, but in action and truth. So let's take the word action out of that sentence and let's replace it with other action words. Let us love with shovels and truth. Let us love with snowblowers and truth. Let us love with casseroles and truth. Let us love by paying a bill and truth. Let us love by giving a car and truth. Let us love with our wallets and truth. The great Christian thinker and writer Francis Schaeffer said this of the relationship between love and our possessions. He said, let me say it very strongly again, there is no use talking about love if it does not relate to the stuff of life in the area of material possessions and needs. If it does not mean a sharing of our material things for our brothers in Christ, close at home and abroad, it means little or nothing. The people of God lay down our lives for one another through radical, joyful generosity. The people of God lay down our lives for each other in radical, joyful generosity. If we don't, how can we say the love of God is in us? There's no other way for recipients of Christ's love to live than through this radical, self-sacrificial generosity. There are two avenues that I see this at play in our lives. I I think one uh, application would be found in the church. Another would be found just in our day-to-day lives, the relationships around us. Within the church, there are ample opportunities for us to meet each other's needs uh, as we have the opportunity. But one specific avenue that brings me such joy and I think is evidence of God's love in and through us is the work of our deacon ministry, Our deacons are men and women who love the Lord, and they love this church, and they serve the church. And one of the ways they serve the church is by taking care of financial needs, uh, the financial needs of our membership. And so when a family or a friend falls on hard times, they ask the church for help. Um, Our deacons receive that request, and then they evaluate it, and they meet the need out of this pool of money called the Deacon's Fund. And do you know how the Deacon's Fund gets replenished? It gets replenished by the faithful gifts of members of this church who don't know who's going to be helped by that gift, but they just know. Someone needs this 20. Someone might need some help. God's given me an abundance, and I want to be generous back to help people in their time of need. I don't want that Deacon's Fund to ever go dry. I want to make sure we always have the ability to say yes when people are in need. We even had an opportunity just this week. Um, Part of the Deacons Fund provides gift cards. We've got these uh, stop-and-shop gift cards in the office. And so from time to time, just a random person with no connection to our church calls and needs a little bit of help. And that's a quick and easy avenue of help we can give. And this week, a sweet woman from our community who's facing some very serious health struggles that have impeded her ability to work, needed help. And uh, I was glad to say that people of this church have provided this for you. So that's one way that we show our love, we lay down our lives for each other, is by helping each other in that point of need. Another way is just in your everyday life, your natural relationships. Brothers and sisters, we have to be quick to be generous. I know that John is speaking here specifically of our relationships in the church, but without a doubt, this has application to our lives outside the church as well. So be quick to be generous. Don't always wait for the ask. When you see the need, meet the need. Mow their yard, shovel their driveway, clean the snow off their car, bake a lasagna, buy school supplies, share a cup of coffee, play a board game, do a puzzle, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. And Jesus said, by this all men will know you are my disciples, by your love for one another. It's a testimony to the watching world of the power of the cross, When God's people live in self-sacrificial, radical, joyful generosity with each other. So John has taught us today the horrors of hate and the power of love. He's told us quite simply, hatred, it is incompatible with the Christian faith. Love, that's essential. For people who have been loved by Christ, we are obligated to share that love with others. Love doesn't ask, does the person across from me deserve it? Love asks, has Christ loved me? That's the motivation the church needs. And There's a beautiful example of this in a story I heard a few years ago about a young couple named Ronnie and Anita Smith. Uh, Ronnie and Anita, uh, around 2013, moved to Libya with their infant son. Ronnie was teaching high school chemistry in Benghazi. Prior to moving to Benghazi, they were on staff at a church in Texas, but they moved to Benghazi under the leadership of Jesus. Their goal was to befriend Libyan people in their community and to show them the love of Christ. And they planned on spending the holidays that year home in the States. And so Anita and their son came home a little before the holidays, and Ronnie had more work to do, and he was going to fly in closer to the holidays And then one morning he was out for his customary jog and he was gunned down by unknown assailants. It was just a couple of weeks after Ronnie's death that Anita wrote an open letter to the Libyan people. And in this letter she describes how much Ronnie loved the people he served and what joy they brought him. And then midway through the letter Anita shifted her audience and she wrote this. To Ronnie's attackers... I love you, and I forgive you. How could I not? For Jesus taught us to love our enemies, not to kill them or seek revenge. Jesus sacrificed his life out of love for the very people who killed him, as well as for us today. His death and resurrection opened the door for us to walk on the straight path to God in peace and forgiveness. Because of what Jesus did, Ronnie is with Jesus in paradise now. Jesus did not come only to take us to paradise when we die, but also to bring peace and healing on this earth. Ronnie loved you because God loves you. Ronnie loved you because God loved him, not because Ronnie was so great, but because God is so great. I hear people speaking with hate and anger and blame over Ronnie's death, but that's not what Ronnie would want. Ronnie would want his death to be an opportunity for us to show one another love and forgiveness Because that's what God has shown us. I want all of you, all the people of Libya, to know I am praying for the peace and prosperity of Libya. May Ronnie's blood shed on Libyan soil, encourage peace and reconciliation between the Libyan people and God. Did they make a mistake? Did this young couple make a mistake by going to Libya? Some would say, yeah, it was a mistake. Ronnie died And their mission failed. But the Bible tells us this. Love never fails. Jesus laid down his life for us. We should lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. May we be the kind of people who love in action and truth. Let's pray together. Father. For your love shown to us through the gift of the Son, who laid down his life for us, we give you praise. We thank you for this kind of love. You're not the angry deity in the sky waiting on us to appease you. You're the God of all love, all compassion, all mercy, who bent to your creation to rescue us from this hate and sin and death. Thank you for the love. We know the love we've experienced, the love we can articulate, love seen at the cross. And so make us those kinds of people as well. I'm grateful that when we, your children, recognize in our hearts that we don't love as we should, that hate has taken a foothold, that you promise us in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and righteous to forgive us. Lead us in that confession today, God. I'm grateful that when we recognize hate has taken a foothold in our lives, that you promise us in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is our atoning sacrifice. And so as we uncover hate in our hearts and deficient love, Lord, we come to you and we rely once again on the love we've been shown by Christ at the cross. Let us be known, South Shore Baptist Church, God, let us be known as a church of incredible, self-sacrificial, tangible love for one another. Let that bear witness to the world around us of the generosity of your love through the gift of your Son. And God, I pray from friends in here that don't know you as their Savior that this day they would believe the message that is from the beginning that they are loved in this way. You sent your son to die for their sins. God, bring new life today as they say yes to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.